You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. So good to feel his presence. Amen. And it's good to see you. Turn around to somebody and tell them, I'm glad you're here in the house of the Lord. I'm glad that we're not alone. Amen. Tonight, but glad that you're here. It is a high honor to welcome my mother and father-in-law tonight officially home here. And that's just, seems like we've been talking about this for like six years. And now here it is. And uh, so awesome. Newest members of the church tonight. So we're glad to have them. I, I actually officially had received a letter of transfer from their former pastor. And so we're, we're glad to have them. That was a special thing. Good to have Kendall home tonight as well. Amen. He's in the area preaching. And I know, didn't he just bless us the last couple, well, the couple weeks that he was here. So amen. He was just, amen, did a tremendous job. So uh, good to have him. We're going to get right into the Word tonight. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Genesis chapter number 2, and you can remain seated. We're going to go through, walk through Scripture tonight uh, at length. Is it dark in here? Is it darker in here than normal? Am I, are my glasses, are the, the lights are off. Okay. Where's Matt? Is Matt here? Can he fix that? Somebody fix that. It's the wrong setting. Maybe Brother Brandon, just go back and. It should be the first setting. Maybe that, that's what it is. I don't know. So now that I've totally got you absolutely distracted, <laughs> forgive me for that. Was it last Wednesday that I had to straighten the rug before I could start? Was that? Jesus, help us. Maybe we need to pray. Thank you. Let there be light in the beginning. Isn't that where we're at? Genesis. So thank you, Brother Philip. So we're going to look at some stuff tonight, and we're going to look at some big ideas by the help of the Lord. Um, and I know there's some that are joining us online tonight that weren't able to be here. They text me, let me know. Uh, by the help of the Lord, we're going to get through chapter two. I do know that last week we only got through three verses, so this is a big accomplishment, but I do need to do that uh, tonight, I feel. And we're going to cover some big ideas so if you will allow me permission to go through my notes here and to follow this, I am going to touch in because this is the foundation. There's so many different things that we're touching, and uh, we'll see. If we don't get through it, we don't want to cheat it, but we are going to touch some big ideas, and uh, I may just go on, and you may not get that. I'll, I'll be happy to share my notes as well. This will be podcasted and, and, and recorded online that you could go back and uh, review this, and uh, some of these things we've already touched, or maybe we'll touch on in a study later on, but wow, the power of God's Word is so great, and there's so much in here, and it is so rich. We can't exhaust it, and uh, I'm trying not to exhaust you by proving that point, amen, so we want to get through this, but uh, just while you're seated, let's just ask the Lord to help us together tonight. Touch my mind, your ears, amen, our hearts together. Can we do that right now, Lord, in Jesus' name? I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you had given to us, God, the power of your revelation. And I pray tonight, God, that we would not be presenting man's ideas or our thoughts, but God, that we would understand your thoughts, your ideas, your word to us. And I pray that it would heal, that it would help, that it would deliver, that it would encourage and edify tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 We are in our Origins series, the study of beginnings, the study of beginnings. And we're actually looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And this is the foundation of all of Scripture, the stories and the histories of of eternity, if you will, in some ways, that God gives to us. And so we finished last week with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. It actually is what Moses records as the seventh day of creation that God gives to us. And now we're going to look tonight at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And this actually is a new starting point in 
the narrative here, if you will. It's, it's a designated starting point in the narrative. And so uh, we're going to jump in here tonight, try to get through chapter 2, Lord willing, if we can, through verses uh, uh, 25. But let's go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4. So here we have a new starting point. We're jumping off. And it says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this verse right here highlights something for us, a couple things that we could take out of this, um, that we, we, we've already discussed a little bit, that this is sort of a summary. He's summarizing here what he's already given us in Genesis chapters 1 through verses 2 and 3. These are the generations, or the account, if you will, of the heavens and the earth, the histories of the earth when they were created in the day. And we, we already talked about the significance of how the context of a day was used. We know that it wasn't all created in a day. It goes through the seven days and talks to us on that. But look at this phrase at the beginning. It says, these are the generations. Now, this is translated generations in our English uh, the Bible, of course, was originally written in Hebrew. The Old Testament parts were written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Aramaic and, and, and Hebrew and Greek. But in the Old Testament, it was originally written in the Hebrew, uh, biblical Hebrew, if you will. And then later on, as the, the Jewish people moved around the world to other places, there was need for translation. One of the biggest places where they moved was they moved over to Egypt and so many people were there, so many Jews living there that did not know Hebrew that they translated it into the Greek of that day. And without getting in too much, when they translated into the Greek, this phrase in our English Bible, these are the generations. If you'll note, it's used, I believe it's, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. I think it's used nine times in the book of Genesis. And each time it's used, it is marking a, a new segment or beginning. So it's used here in chapter 2. Uh, it's used 10 times. I think it's used 11 times. I think I missed a reference here. Uh, 2 and 4, it's used in 5, 1. It's used in 6, 9. It's used in all these. You can look this up and pull this up. But it's giving a new account. And you actually get, we get our title for the book of Genesis from the word that was translated here, generations, that comes from the Greek word that's translated generations. And so the significance of the book of Genesis, uh, the Hebrews did not call it Genesis because Genesis is not a Hebrew word. But the English word Genesis is taken from the Greek word that the Hebrews translated, if I'm not confusing you yet, into this, and they talked about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis was the book of the generations, if you will, for lack of a better understanding. So when we refer to the Bible as Genesis, the book of Genesis, um, we, we're just referring to a book. We're not thinking about the context of what we are referring to. But when they would refer to the book of Genesis... They were referring to the generations. They were referring to the account. This was the book of beginnings. This was the book of accounts. And it's interesting that the history from, from chapter 2, verse 4, on down through chapters, I think it is uh, 4, I can't remember where I put that, through chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, it is the history or the account of heaven and earth. The history of heaven and earth that is given to them. And then at the end of chapter 4, it's done. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, well, let's, let's look at what 5 verse 1 says. 5 verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So now it's gone past the histories of the heaven and earth, and now it's telling you specifically the histories of Adam. And then you go, I think it's 6 and verse uh, 9. These are the generations of Noah. So then it goes through 
a little bit more targeted. So it's, it's this book of account. And the interesting thing is this, is that the, the, the history of heaven and earth for the Jewish people was personal. It was always personal because the pers- their personal history and the history of the earth was told through the story of people, not just events. So the book of Genesis was very personal to them in their culture. Adam was, they could trace their lineage back to Adam. Noah, Abraham, they would trace their lineage. So their histories were very personal. And Moses is now telling the story of the history of heaven and earth. And then their story and the story of God's dealing with man and relationship and everything. But it comes, it's told through people not events. So there's a very human face to this, if you will. There's a, there's a warmth. There's something that they have tied into and that they've, they've, they've latched onto. And that's why we would understand they would call this the book of generations or the book of Genesis, if you will. This book, this accounting here. And so this is interesting. I think the fact that the history of heaven and earth being presented through very personal stories, that the presentation itself reinforces for us the scriptural principles. And catch this, because this is fundamental. The fact that it's told through people and not just events, it reinforces for us the scriptural principle of human dignity or put it this way, that mankind is God's special creation and that mankind alone, different from every other animal, every other created being, holds a special capacity for relationship with God. So this is very fundamental. Now, why why are you taking time with something so trivial? Oh, yeah, that's cool. It seems nerdy and all this stuff. Because the culture of our world and the spirit of our world is trying to reduce human beings down to just a cosmic accident of matter. And everything is about events and it's everything else. But God himself chose to tell Moses the history of the heavens and the earth through very personal stories and very personal faces, human beings. And this highlights that the way we understand everything that happened and everything that's going to happen, it highlights human dignity. Now in chapter one, we spent eight weeks on chapter one and we covered human dignity. You can go back and you can pull that up and you can look at that. So he says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. And then he goes to verse five. Let's go to verse five. And now we are going to see the world in first glimpse. Now, by the way, Genesis is not going in chronological order because chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, gave us the seven days of creation. But now he's going to go back and he's going to tell us details about the seventh day of creation, we, or the seven days of creation, things that are filtering in. So there is a lot of confusion, and we do not have I, I won't say we, maybe you have all the answers, I do not have all the answers. Turn to somebody and tell tell them he does not have all the answers. Okay? And I I say this, and you've heard me say this, the Word of God does not tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. Okay? So there are times where I'll step out, even tonight, and I'll say, okay, this is a little bit of conjecture or speculation. So just understand that. So he goes on, and now he's going to give us a glimpse of the world before before he had created everything. And it says in the KJV, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. Now, if you will, go back to 2.5. Go back to 2, verse 5. 
And something we need to pay attention to. This is Old English KJV. We don't speak totally like this anymore. And this passage illustrates that. It says, in every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. The prime key word that's tipping us off to something here is that word before. Before. What's, what's this verse saying here? Before. So to make this a little bit easier, I was going to go to the MEV, the modern English version, my second favorite version of the Bible, and we do not have that. So can you go to the ESV? Go to the English Standard Version. Do you have the ESV for me? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, you can go to the ESV or you can go to the NASB, either one of those. And it's going to reword it in a little bit more modern vernacular, and I don't think either one of these translations will do any damage. I think it helps us here if we have that. Are you pulling that up? Because I don't have that in my notes. The ESV. All right, here it is. The NLT. No, that wasn't one I suggested. <laughs> Do we have the ESV or the NASB? We have the NASB? Neither wild plants nor grains. There we go. NIV. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. So that is a better, probably understood, translation for us today. So what it's telling us was here's a portrait of the earth. So God is giving us a picture of the earth, what it looked like. There's no shrubs appeared. No plant has sprung up because of two reasons. There's no rain, and there's no one to till the ground. But then it goes on to verse 7. Go on to verse 7 in 2, 5, or 2, yeah, 2, 6. Sorry, go to 2, 6 in the NIV, if you're right there. Sorry, I messed them up. Here we go. But streams come up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And so the, the, the KJV uses the word midst there, but streams is probably better because um, it's talking about a flow. There was a flow of water. And so there was a point in the time in earth where God had created everything and it had the potential, but nothing had grown there. Why? And there was no man to till the ground. So there was a, I don't know how long that period was. I just wanted to tell you guys that. I have no clue. Let's go to the next verse. All right. So I don't have all the answers. I don't know, but it's in there. It's an interesting thing. And then in verse 7, and the Lord God formed, there we go. Okay, before we go to verse 7, let me just say that verses 5 and 6 establish, one thing it does establish here was that there was a source or the act of waters pre-flood. So we know when the flood comes that everything changes. Rain comes and all that stuff. So it gives us a portrait. We don't understand all those things, but you can conjecture. I'm not going to take time to do that now. I'll do that when we get to the flood part. So verse 7 now, this is where we're going to talk about something interesting. And the Lord God formed. Everybody say formed. Three words I'm going to highlight here. Formed. And the Lord God formed. That's the first word, man, of the dust of the ground. And the next word, breathed. Everybody say breathed. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Everybody say soul. Okay, so here he is. So there's three things that we see from this. Now, in day six, we already know that he's created man in his own image, male and female created he them. So we already know that's established. So this is not a, another creation account. This is expounding some things that have already been established. From this verse right here, we get the three parts of our being, and that is this. We would say body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. Well, the first is this, in this presentation. Now, in other places, God would say spirit, soul, and body, but in in. In this presentation, the first thing it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What is that? Body. Thank you. You can yell it out to me. That's the body. He formed man of the dust of the ground. But there it is. It's this body. And there it is. And then what does it say? And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is that? Spirit. Okay? Spirit. And man became. Now, when you take body and spirit, 
What does body and spirit then become? When spirit enters into body, what happens? It said, he became a living soul. So God created a living soul. Now, here's three big things, and I'm not going to have time to go through all of this because we're not going to do an independent study on this, but maybe we will later on. We'll talk about this, and we'll use Scripture to expound on this. Body, soul, and spirit. So real quickly, let's note these things. There's body, there's spirit, and there's soul. Form, breathe, and then he says he's going to be a living being or a living soul. Now note, we will say things like this. We'll say things, we'll, we'll use phrases like human spirit, the human spirit. But the Bible actually never uses that phrase kind of human spirit. We are a body, which we, we know we're flesh, we're physical. The body can get sick. The spirit, it says, God, what does it say? Look at this and breathe, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So where does the body come from? Let me ask you this question. Where does the body come from? The dust of the ground. And breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. Where did that come from? God. So the spirit, where did the spirit come from? The spirit came from God. Thank you. So the body comes from the ground. The spirit comes from God. The soul became a living soul. That's what God creates. He creates a soul. This, the, the body is nothing more than the tabernacle that houses the soul. The soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions, who you are. The spirit belongs to God. The spirit is the force of life. It is the force of life. If the spirit goes out of you, you're dead. But the spirit is the force of life. And the Bible says the spirit returns to God. So the spirit belongs to God and returns to God. The spirit is the force of life within us. It is the breath of life. It is impersonal. So it is not who we are. When we say, well, you know, they got a bad human spirit, and we use these kind of phrases, who you are, the essence of who you are is your soul. And the soul is who we are. The soul is what encompasses the mind. The soul is what encompasses the will. It's what encompasses the heart. We nuance say, uh, we'll speak about it from the heart. We'll talk about the heart. Um, The heart wants this or something. We use that as the seat of our emotions. In fact, sometimes the Bible talks about uh, that the, the mind is not the heart. Sometimes the seat of the emotions is the gut. Did you know that in the scripture? It's the gut. Jesus said, out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. He was talking about that. And isn't it interesting? I think it's really interesting. I don't know if anybody else has paid attention, but I I can't remember where I was watching this um, YouTube clip somebody sent me, but that they now think that your heart and your gut has a mind of its own. I'm not making this up. And it's actually... there, it's convincing that your heart thinks on its own, that it will do like certain things kind of thing. It's a weird thing. It's an interesting thing. And so that's a unique thing. So maybe there's something to that. Jesus said, out of your bellies, out of your innermost being, who you are, the essence of who you are. He didn't say out of your brain will flow rivers of living water. Out of your belly. So sometimes they would refer to the things, uh, uh, the heart panteth, uh, no, not that's the wrong heart. Um, I was trying to think of another verse where it talks about the heart kind of thing. Um, but it's the soul, the essence of who you are. And then the body is purely the tabernacle or the shell that houses the soul. And we see all that right here. It's unfolded later on in Scripture through other verses. I'm not going to take the time to go through that. Furthermore, the soul never dies. Now, wait a minute. Somebody said the soul of sinners shall surely die. Yes, in the context of what that's talking about is that the soul will speak, uh, death, the eternal death speaks of an eternal separation from God. That whenever there's sin, there's a separation from God. But the soul does not cease to being. So when you're alive, uh, man becomes a living soul at the point that breath, okay, that the spirit gives the body life, okay? So not not necessarily the point that takes a breath because we don't think that a baby is not a living soul until that baby takes its first breath because that's not what it's saying there. But the moment that spirit, the force of life in it is given to it, 
it becomes a living soul. So God creates the soul. The soul never dies, but the body will die. So what happens to the body? What happens when you die? When you die, the body goes back to dust. It's dust. That's all it is. It's dust. So, so yeah, so that's it. There's nothing, there's nothing about the body. You're, you're, you're dust. You go back. The spirit, where's the Bible says spirit returns to the Lord. It's, it's, it's impersonal. It's his spirit. It's the force of life. It's not our spirit. Our soul and our spirit is not splitting in some kind of thing. We don't own this, but the soul never dies. And the Bible teaches, and this is for another thing. I don't have to talk about this, but the Bible teaches that the departed soul has no communication with those who remain. The only time it does, we see in Samuel where the witch of Endor uh, is, is commissioned by Saul, refuses, and then goes and tries to do it. And we see it, it's either an act of God or it's demons that are impersonating things. So anyway, so we see this here, origin, the study of beginnings. We see the body, the soul, and the spirit. All right, and verse 8, and the Lord God planted, somebody say planted. So God did it. He did the work. Notice this. A garden eastward in Eden, and there he put a man, there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, I'm going to pause here real quick and say, you know, sometimes we're trying to read between the lines and we're trying to figure out all the details. And if we're not careful, we can put in details that the Bible maybe may have not intended for us to know or to get. But the Bible says God does the work he planted, and there he put the man whom he had formed. What he doesn't tell us, and it seems to imply that this was sort of Adam's beginning state of being. Did Adam exist before Eden? I don't know. Um, I wasn't there. Neither was Moses. Neither was anybody else. So everything we have here, we understand, is going on what God gave to Moses. We're putting our faith in God's word, and he says, He's, he's proved it time and time again. And so here he is, he's put there. Uh, and, and I said that because there was a point and a reason why God gave his word to humanity. And sometimes we're going searching for the wrong thing instead of figuring out the point that God's giving. Look at this. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the eyes and good for the food. By the way, let's pause here. God planted the garden. We're going to see this later on. This is going to play into it. Later on, he's going to tell Adam that he's going to have to do the work. God did the work and planted the garden. He never made the earth. He never made the earth. He never designed the earth to take care of itself. That was extra. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of of knowledge of good and evil. What is the tree of life? Well, it seemed to be something that was rejuvenating and perpetually sustaining. There was a tree of life in the midst of the garden. So every tree, and then it gives us details about two trees. There's a tree of life in the garden that was perpetually sustaining. We'll talk about that more when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden because they were banished specifically from the tree of life. But then it says the tree of knowledge of good and evil, okay? And the river went out of the garden to the water, uh, to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. And the name of the first one is Pison, and that which, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and there is bellum and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gahan. The same is that that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is and that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, we don't know where the Garden of Eden was, but we do know the area where the Garden of Eden was. Because Moses is telling this story after the flood has taken place. And so I know that when the flood came, it would have changed the landscape massive. The Bible talks about it being catastrophic. But Adam... Uh, or, or rather, Moses here is identifying for them in their contemporary setting where the Garden of Eden was, and he's referring to things that they would have known. So the argument that says, well, the rivers would have all changed, and there's no way we could have known. Well, we would have known the region. It wasn't in North America. Okay? And the name of the third river, yep. And the fourth is Euphrates, which goeth east to Assyria. So it was somewhere in that fertile crescent area. 
which is now interesting to see how dry and arid and desert-like, wilderness-like, that so much of that is. And yet God is talking about, or Moses is talking about here, the Lord is speaking through him, about this garden that God set. God planted this garden. It was incredible. It was this utopian-type place. Now we're going to get into some really, really good stuff. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, notice it's redundant here. It's already said that God put him in Eden, but he's saying it again. And the Lord God took the man, and I'm highlighting that because sometimes people try to read this chronologically and they get all confused and they're trying to piece everything together and they're missing the point of what the text is saying. Now, it's told us what the world looked like before. It's told us the components of man and now it's telling us about this garden. It's setting the stage, and it's telling us two things. There's two things we're taking out of this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Period. So we have this end of this segment. God is introducing two things here to us. Number one, we see the first thing is our purpose and relation with creation. We see man has an established relationship with creation. God gives it to him. God plants the garden. God puts man there. God gives him command on how he is to act and what he is to do. He gives him a purpose here. And then the next thing he does is he gives Adam one rule. One rule. I want you to know that this thing started with just one rule. That was it. Easy. Easy, easy, easy. Don't tell me God is a hard God. He tried to make it as easy as possible. All right, so let's look at this. Let's go through and look at what, what's going on here. Okay, so I'm on the back page, praise God. We're already moving ahead. The tree of life gives you sustaining life but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God gave them, God created them with life. We know that. And he also created them with moral discernment. He gave them the capacity to love him. He gave them the capacity to worship him. He gave them the capacity to obey him. The capacity for those things, he gave them free will. And that free will necessitated this rule that would exist. But let's talk about what this concept, the knowledge of good and evil. So God was not creating them in some kind of uh, uh, ignorant state to keep them limited to hold them from something, God gave them morality. He gave them knowledge. He gave them, but they were to derive their knowledge, their moral discernment from Him, not from creation. And so God says, the day that you eat of this, the knowledge of good and evil... You eat of this, and you're going to know all the ways of evil. You eat of this. And he said, when that comes in, he said, when that innocence is broken, he said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death will enter into your, your being. And that death ultimately was not just a physical death, but it was a separation from God. So we look at this. So we see that he gave first... Uh, a purpose and a relationship with creation. So he puts man in the garden, and he gives him purpose. What was his purpose and relationship with creation? What did he tell him to do in the garden? 
Dress it and keep it. What does that mean? It means work it. You can pull up the NASB, the NIV, pick a version, I don't know. But the old KJV says, there you go, NIV says, he put them in there to work it and take care of it. Again, the earth was never intended to take care of itself. God designed us to be the stewards and the cultivators of the earth. We are the ones that were to do this. Adam, you are to dress it. Approve the point. Stop mowing your yard and see if you can go out and harvest a garden. Just let it go and see if that works. It's not going to work. God, by design, made these things intended. And it's interesting to note that these things are before the fall. Well, man, if I hadn't had him sinned, I wouldn't have to work. Wait a minute. Work or purpose predates the fall of man. Hello? Right? There's a joy... There's a fulfillment in, in work, in life. And that's natural because it comes from it. Am I in the book, folks? I'm not teaching false doctrine, am I? Okay. So it's here, dress it and keep it. Now, not only he talks about our relationship with, with creation. He talked about it before to take dominion and all that stuff. But now he's talking about the earth itself. And then look at what he says here. He goes, so, so work is a part of our purpose, but now he goes to the first rule. We have to ask the question. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat thereof. Okay, so we have to ask the question, why or what purpose did this first rule serve? Why did God put it in there? Why didn't he just leave it out? Why didn't God just create the garden and put the tree of life in there, tell Adam to work, and just leave this one out? Why did he give Adam this rule? You got, you're going you're gonna to take a shot at it. Brothers, I read it. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Jump on in. He wanted to give Adam a choice to serve the Lord or not. He created us with a free will. We are a special creation. We have a capacity to know God greater than any other creature. To have a relationship with God. And He created us with a free will. We can come to the omniscient omnipresent, absolute, transcendent God and say, no, thank you. And by the way, we have to work very, very hard to reject the love and the grace of God. But what makes our love and worship means something to him when we have the choice to not love and to not worship. How could Adam worship if there was no choice but to worship? And so God says, Adam, it wasn't God that needed this opportunity. It was Adam that needed the opportunity. How would Adam know that he loved God more than anything else if he never had an opportunity for anything else? How would Adam know that God was truly worthy and be able to worship him on a daily basis if he never had an opportunity not to worship him? How did he know his heart was in the right place? His, I said his heart. 
His soul was fixed on the right things if he never had an opportunity for something else. And so this free will necessitated. It required it. God never intended. He intended from the very beginning for Adam and Eve to have life, thus the tree of life. But he did not intend for mankind to attempt to find knowledge or moral discernment independent of him as well. The only way for Adam to express his love, his worship, and obedience was to have more than one option. The only way to express his gratitude was to have the option to not be grateful. So it wasn't just a good idea, but it was a required option for Adam to fully have free will. The tree was provided for something Adam needed, and this was what it was, an opportunity to demonstrate obedience and submission every single day. Daily worship. How do I know I worship God every day? Say, well, Pastor, man, I, I, just, I just can't go to church every day. I can't. I, I want to be at church every day, but I can't. And I, I'm trying to do everything. And, you know, if, we, if we, we could guilt ourselves into thinking that, well, if I'm not at church 24-7 praying and reading my Bible, and if I'm just not fasting 24-7, 365 days a year, I'm just not doing enough to love God. Don't try that. How do I know I'm worshiping God every day? Because God gives us each opportunity every single day. Catch this. And if there's one phrase, I would have you write this down. Adam's abstinence secured his relationship with God. Adam's abstinence secured his relationship with God. It was one little rule. And Adam's abstinence, Adam saying, I'm not going to eat of this tree. I can eat of the thousands of other trees, but I'm not going to eat of this tree just because God said not to that God told him what it was. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam's curious mind could have said, well, I wonder what this is. I want to find out what this is. But he said, no, I'm going to get my knowledge from God. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to obey God every day. I'm going to submit. I'm going to surrender to God. My life is not intended to be outside of God. God has given me every other pleasurable fruit in the world. Adam had access to it, and his abstinence secured his relationship with God, because he did not, he walked with God in the cool of the day. He had relationship with God. But the moment that that was transgressed, the moment that that was broken, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God... While God prohibited this specific treat, God gave Adam access to every other delightful fruit. And the lie of the serpent was this. The lie of the serpent caused them to focus on the forbidden. And we'll talk about this more in chapter 3. And can I tell you, the lie hasn't changed much. Because the enemy today would still cause people to focus on the forbidden instead of the provision. What is, what is Genesis chapter 2 telling us? It's telling us that God put us in the most fruitful. He provided for us a sanctuary. He gave us the most desirable thing. He reduced it all down by necessity. Just one rule. As easy as you could have it. And the serpent caused us to focus on the forbidden instead of the provision. God gave Adam everything. 
And the Lord God said in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet. And help meet. Wow, I, I don't think I have time to get into this tonight. But before you jump into verse 18, you would, ask, you would also ask this other question. This is an interesting thing. Um, that's probably the question of not why the tree was in there, but then if you go to why was Adam created? Why was mankind created? I think I referred to it in the Absolute Series. I cannot remember if I referred to it or not. But there's an excellent study by... Uh, a mentor of mine called the divine law of being. And I think Brother Cliff Readout has done some incredible insight. I was working on something. This has been probably, I don't know, 15 years ago in my devotions and asking some questions and was talking about some things and then and came across some things that he had talked about in this that sort of answered a lot of questions for me. But if you ask, why did God create at all? Why did God create at all? And I think we see this later on in Scripture, purely, or purely in Scripture. There's a lot of Scripture to use to come to this conclusion. I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight, so I'm just going to give you a little hint, and this will be something that maybe we'll touch on later on. But God's divine law of being. Have you ever heard me say, I use the phrase, Jesus, everything is the same equivalent, equivalent as Jesus, or God, everything is the same equivalent as God, nothing? Have you ever heard me use that saying? No. No, maybe. Okay, thank you. Somebody's used it. I used it where? Thank you. In the absolute series. So God, everything. Before the beginning, there was nothing but God, right? God's everything. God is everything. There's nothing else until God creates something. But God, everything, if God is everything and there is nothing else, it is the same as if there is absolutely nothing. In fact, God is the only one that knows nothing. We don't know nothing. We all know something. We have some kind of context. Is it, you catch what I said there? God is the only one that knows nothing. He's the only one that knows what it is like when there is nothing. God everything, he's all in all, but if he's got everything when there is nothing, it's the same mathematical equivalent as God nothing. Right? So God everything when there is nothing, no matter, no creation, absolutely nothing, God everything is just potential until it's applied. What good is it if God knows everything when there's nothing to know? What good is it if God is all-powerful and there's nothing to have power for? You follow me? So God, everything is the same equivalent as God, nothing. So why did God create? I'm going to tell you, God didn't create for you and me. He created for himself. Because God is not powerful, all-powerful, until he applies that power, until he applies that knowledge. So he has to express himself. And how does he express himself to nothing? So he has to create something, but, but God, being all-powerful and almighty, and I'm jumping through a massive series of a lot of Scripture and a whole bunch of stuff, how does God... How does God justify himself. He can't justify himself. How does God even assign value to himself? Well, no one can assign value to themselves. Value can only be assigned to somebody by somebody else. So if God is holy and God is pure and God is perfect and God is worthy and God is the greatest thing and God is all love and God is marvelous and God is magnificent, what is it if there's nothing to be all those things for? And what is it if he just tells himself that? But when he creates, now he creates with something with free will that now has the ability 
to assign worth and value to God. Does that make sense? So why was Adam created? You and I were not created for our own pleasure on this earth. Why were we created? That every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, what part of every means every? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop short with this. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That even means every condemned knee. There will be a place in time, and this, this is the terror, that there will be a place in time where those who have been condemned, those who rejected God, who fought so hard against God. By the way, how do, how do you fight against the love and the grace of God that is reaching so hard, yet we push against the love and the grace of God? There will be a day where those that have rejected Christ, that have rejected God, will stand before Him. And they will not be coerced. They will not be forced. But they, even in their condemned state, the Bible says, will bow their knee and will confess. He is worthy. I fought against him and I rejected it, but he is holy. They will be so overcome that of his worth and of his majesty. Herein, herein is our purpose. And can I tell you there are great benefits in serving God and loving God? The benefits, oh, forevermore we shall be with the Lord. Ha! Bible says there was a space in heaven of half an hour of total, utter silence. How do you bring the redeemed? How do you bring those that made it over? That in a moment of triumph, what happened? You, you just want to scream. You just want to let it out. How do you bring them to a place where they are so overcome? When we finally see him as he is... For we shall be like him. And all of heaven, the cherubim, that cry holy, 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 one to another, in that moment will be so overcome that our worship will not be a silence of withholding. It will be a silence of inability to express Wow, the magnificence and the glory and the power of God. God's pretty good. God's pretty good. God's pretty good. And he put us in a garden and said, look, there's just one rule. <laughs> and you need this rule. I don't need this rule. You're the one that needs the rule. You're the one that needs to know that you weren't forced to do this. So I'm giving you options. You can have all of this. Just don't touch this one. And they miss the one rule. Do we need help or do we need help? Aren't you thankful for his grace and his love and his mercy? And when they fell, he didn't leave them hopeless. He said, by the way, I've already got it prepared. Because I am the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And he's taken us through this drama of redemption. He is revealing himself. And that's why it starts out in Genesis, and, and, and don't lose perspective, and that's why it closes with what's the final book? The revelation of Jesus Christ. I wish we'd pay attention to that title a whole lot more when we're reading that. Because we're trying to figure out where do I need to be and where do I need to put my stocks and where do I need to have. We're trying to figure all that out. And the point is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring it to pass. And the world will know. You can stand together with me. So 
we go on out of the ground. The Lord formed every beast and he brought them to Adam and Adam calls them and to see what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature. That was the name thereof. Adam names them. I don't know how long that day was. It probably was a long day. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowl to every beast. But for Adam, there was not an help meet found for him. Now, we close the chapter out with the story of the creation of woman and the story of the first marriage, which we've already talked about when we, when we outlined it in chapter 1, that male and female created he them. But we do see here that the Bible says there was not found a help meet for him. That was not a subservient thing. But the NIV Study Bible has a great, great article on it where it talks about the Hebrew words translated suitable helper here suggested help and assistance beyond the recipient's own ability. And it was somebody that would correspond with him. So it would not be him. It would not be the same, but it would be somebody that would correspond with him. And so it says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And verse 21, KJV, And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. We have here the first record of surgery. And the text implies this, that God took something and closed it up. And then the rib which the Lord God, or the side which the Lord God had taken from man, made a woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It is note. It is highly noted that this is the only single specific creation account of woman in any ancient Near East literature, highlighting the fact that Scripture elevated the status and state of women like no other culture in its time. Now, many people have misinterpreted Scripture and use scripture, and twisted scripture over times. And men have made mistakes, and the Bible records some of those horrible things. But Moses is speaking in the day of a context where he is elevating the status of women to an equal status of man. It goes on, and we talked about the first marriage in the last two verses two verses here of this chapter. We already talked about all of that and outlined that in chapter number one. But I thank God that he gave us this account here. There's so much in here that we just touched on that we went through. Are you thankful for the word of the Lord? Amen. And I'm thankful that God's grace and mercy, amen. Come on, I don't know about you, but you know who you are when you read this and you understand, wow, God thinks of me in a special way. What's the moral? Walk home with this. God wants to have a relationship with you. You matter. You count. Every single individual. Come on, can you pray today? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And I pray today that the truth of this word would cut through the garbage of our culture, the ideologies of this world, the traditions of men. I pray, God, that your word would liberate us to live freely as your child, God, as your believer. Lord, I pray against the, the evil things of this world that are being cast upon us, that are being indoctrinated in us, Lord. Help us to stand upon the liberating truth of the word of God. And let us begin right here in the book of Genesis. Let us begin with the understanding of the things that you have given to us. I thank you, God. We are to live, God, dependent on you. And I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice would have a relationship, a personal relationship with you. Help us to understand that our abstinence from the things of this world secure our relationship with you. We can't do it in the flesh, but by the power of your spirit, you have given us victory over sin. And Lord, I stand today, God, thankful and grateful in the name of Jesus Christ. Can we clap our hands unto the Lord today? God, I thank you today. Lord, I thank you today. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I can live, amen, a life without sin, not because of who I am, but because of who he is, 
because of what he's done, because of what he's made possible in our life. I'm going to tell you, every child of God, every believer, you can live a life, an overcoming life. That was a prevailing doctrine and understanding in the New Testament that you can live a life overcoming sin, not because of who you are, but because of who he is and what he has done. Are you thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. Amen, 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 amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. Don't miss Sunday. Reverend Ethan Hagen, I'll be teaching the Sunday school. He's going to be preaching in the morning service. Awesome, awesome evangelists. We love the Hagen family. Looking forward to them. We hope to see you then. God bless you in Jesus' name.